0: Welcome to Biofilm First, a podcast exploring the work being conducted at the Center for Biofilm Engineering at Montana State University, the world's first, largest, and best-known biofilm research center. My name is Skip Anderson, and today we're talking with Dr. Darla Gores, whose research interests include standardized biofilm methods development, biological reactor design, the evaluation of biofilms in the built environment, and efficacy testing of potential anti-biofilm treatments. Today, we'll ask Darla about the importance of standard methods, the ASTM process, and the role biofilms play in skunky-smelling, funky-tasting draft beers. But first, Darla, who chairs the ASTM E35 committee, notes that the majority of the leadership positions within the subcommittees and the main committee are filled by women. Darla, how did that come about?
1: That's a great question. So I started ASTM. When I started ASTM, it was the late 1990s, early 2000s. And on the E35 committee, in the E35 committee, there were some amazing women who were really leading in the area of antimicrobial methods development, and they were fabulous role models and encouraged me and encouraged my female colleagues and really helped to create a culture within the E35 committee that was very welcoming to both females and actually younger people as well. So today, E35, the main committee, the majority of the um, officer positions are filled by females, so I chair it. And my co-chair, my sub-chair is a female, as is the membership secretary. And then on our um, E35.15, which is the technical committee underneath the main committee uh, where the antimicrobial test methods are developed, that is also chaired by a female and the secretary is also a female. So yeah, it's kind of amazing. And And I'm hoping now that I'm the chair, that I can be the role model for the younger women who are getting into methods development.
0: So do you have a deep bench in that <coughs> regard or are you starting to see them come up through the ranks?
1: We are actually, it's kind of amazing. So it's, uh, ASTM has done a really good job, at least our committee has done a really good job thinking about legacy planning. And so these test methods are developed and then every five years they need to be reviewed to make sure that they're still capturing the state of the art. And so it's important that we get uh, people who are staying up on the state of the art, who are bringing new ideas into our committees to make our methods as relevant as they possibly could be. And we have a lovely spectrum of experience levels and um, male and female ratios within our committee. Yeah.
0: Well, there's been a lot of evolution in encouraging women into STEM careers right over the past decade or two uh, and maybe we're starting to see that you know as as they mature in their careers now and then you would think there's even more people behind them following their lead into these careers right
1: yeah that definitely um, having more younger women get into STEM is probably a factor that's helping our committee maintain this nice balance but I have participated in other meetings or other organizations where there still is actually imbalance in those male, male-female male ratios. So it's one of those things that's lovely to see in ASTM E35, yeah. I mean, we've all gone to a conference and the line of speakers was predominantly male and there was a female speaker in the lineup.
0: So, have you been that female in the and lineup? And I have
1: been that female in the lineup. Yes, I have, yeah. <laughs> I have been the the female in the room.
0: Well, it is great that that is changing for myriad reasons. Uh, you've been appointed research professor of <coughs> regulatory science, uh, and that's a new that's a new thing. And you will develop a regulatory science program. Uh, how do you teach regulatory science? I mean, what kind of courses uh, will it include?
1: So that's a great, great question on how you teach regulatory science. Uh, So regulatory science programs exist at other universities. And so when we were developing the proposal uh, to get the grad, it's going to be a graduate certificate in regulatory science. And when we were developing the proposal for this graduate certificate, I did a lot of research actually in investigating other regulatory science programs throughout the United States and looking and evaluating what courses they included within their programs. Uh, So regulatory science in general is a development of tools for informed decision-making and it is closely associated with US FDA, actually. It's more closely associated with the FDA than it is with the EPA. And so within the FDA, a lot of these programs actually focus on drug development and toxicology so that building from that what we're very much interested in is the the pathway the regulatory science pathway so some of the tools that are important for decision making include standard methods so uh, my history leading up to this position it is a new position at MSU it's kind of exciting that MSU was willing to be for thinking in appointing me as this uh, professor of regulatory science that's that's incredibly exciting and part of my thinking is to actually make it more inclusive so to include subject areas and coursework that discuss not only how to take say antimicrobial products or different um, innovative products through the FDA process, but also to discuss how to take these products data registration through the EPA process, which interestingly isn't exactly the same. (laughs) So it's going to require um, just understanding what's required in a good data package, helping these students understand that process, Helping them understand what questions to ask, so that when the consumer goes and purchases a product that is registered, has been approved by the EPA or the FDA, the consumer can have confidence in the product that they're buying.
0: So, where do you see the graduates of this program? Where do their where do their careers go?
1: The graduates of the program, the the large companies. Uh, in the United States have regulatory science divisions. So they have entire teams of people that interface between like the R&D marketing of the company and then the regulatory agencies, whether that happens to be the FDA or the EPA, depending on the company. So I see these graduates being, um, going and working for companies in their regulatory science uh, programs or departments divisions. They also could work for the FDA and the EPA. So hopefully some of our graduates actually go back into the FDA or the EPA and are in the front lines of developing policies around some of these new innovative ideas. That's really um, a huge opportunity to educate students who then move into the organization that you're trying to collaborate with.
0: Well, your research emphasis is heavy in standard methods, yes. but why would a non-scientific person care about standard methods?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think um, every non-scientific person should care about standard methods. And here's why, when they go into the grocery store and there is completely aisles full of different products and they're trying to make the decision as to which product should I choose to clean or disinfect my home? The small tiny print on those bottles, some of them will have claims and if you read the small tiny print it will say kills say 99.9999% of the bacteria and they will sometimes list the bacteria, maybe Pseudomonas aeruginosa, Staphylococcus aureus. Um, When tested according to ASTM method X, Y, and C, And so these standard methods provide confidence to the consumer that the product they're buying actually is going to do what they think it's going to do.
0: Hmm. Why, it, why do you never see kills 100% of the germs? Why is it always ninety-nine point nine 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 repeating nines?
1: Repeating nines, okay. So to say 100% would be phenomenal, and that's sterilization. So if someone wanted to get something that says kills 100% of the germs or of the bacteria, then they're going to need to use a sterilization technique. And so perhaps like going into um, a dental office and they have sterilized using something like an autoclave that increases the pressure, increases the temperature to literally kill everything on those surfaces they, they would use something like that. But the consumer isn't going to have an autoclave in their home. And really, the, the consumer doesn't need to have 100% kill in their home, right? Because to do that requires actually really aggressive chemistries. And we don't, really need in the typical home such aggressive chemistries. We're, we're more controlling the bacteria. We're knocking them down. We're keeping them in check. We're not making those numbers go to zero like you would want to like in a, an operating room or something like that. That's a very different criteria.
0: So at 99 point repeating nines, it's at a level that isn't going to be toxic to most healthy people, is, is that the idea there? That's
1: the idea, yeah. Is that the, um, when there's even a three log kills, so which would be 99.9. So that means if there were uh, a thousand bacteria and there were, on my hand and there was a three log kill, then that would mean that we would be down right at that limit of detection to very low counts. But if I had, let's say, a billion bacteria on my hand, which would be a one with six zeros after it, right? And I killed three logs. You take away a zero for every log. That means I would have a thousand bacteria left on my hand. But my hand's pretty big. And a thousand bacteria, depending on what they are, probably is okay, Uh, especially if I'm just walking around doing doing normal daily activities and not licking my hands and, and rubbing my eyes.
0: Well, what have you learned from developing standard methods that might be useful for laboratories that don't currently use standard methods?
1: Interesting. So, what have standard methods taught me? I'll tell you the need for statistical thinking. That is so critical and the need to use this statistical thinking to improve experimental design. So, these laboratories that that don't really embrace statistical thinking or, or don't understand the variability within their method, um, they could be coming up with such better experimental designs that would allow them to get the most information for the least amount of effort. And so if I understand my method really well, and I understand if it's repeated, Uh, from experiment to experiment, it's repeated by a different person doing that experiment, or it's repeated multiple replicates within a single experiment done by a single person. I can tell you, this is amazing, but I can tell you using our standard methods where all the variability is associated with. So I know how much variability is associated with samples within an experiment, how much variability is associated with from experiment to experiment, from experiments done by different people and then experiments done in different labs. And based on that, then I can understand and come up with a design that will optimize so I get the best information for the least amount of work.
0: So that helps you to approach your experiments in a way that inherently is more efficient if you are if you in a standard method mindset going into the design. Of yes. The, so people who don't use standard methods, scientists and engineers who don't use standard methods, do engineers use standard methods? So, oh yeah, engineers.
1: Okay. ASTM was built on engineering okay, actually, okay. so they use standard methods all the time. So <laughs> people
0: who don't, science, scientists and engineers right. who don't use standard methods, is that because they just hasn't, haven't really been exposed to it? They don't understand that this tool is available to them? Or do they maybe they know it's there, but they don't have the statistical background to really utilize that tool?
1: Right, so that's a, that's a good question, why scientists may choose not to use a standard method. And there's a few different reasons. Like, so one, it could be the standard method that they need doesn't exist. And so it could be that they're really exploring an idea that's brand new, paradigm switching. They're using tools, research tools that are state of the art and the, the methods, the standard methods actually haven't been developed around those tools yet. And they're really pushing the field and so that, that's a legitimate reason and they're gathering this initial data, this, this initial information, um, yeah, they're, they're like breaking ground. And, and so they're, the methods just don't exist for them. Um, sometimes they choose to not use standard methods because maybe they feel it's limiting to what they're trying to research, that if they use a standard method, perhaps it limits the in- innovation or creativity within a lab instead of um, where I would counter, that actually standard methods are a launch, you know, are where you launch from. So you have the standard methods, you have the system that you understand, we understand really well. And then from that we build and expand and go on. And they really enable then for creativity. They form the basis, they're a great teaching tool. New students come in, they don't know, they have to learn. You can give them a standard operating procedure, a standard method, and it will teach them the basic skills they need to know that will then launch them forward to, to start to investigate and modify it so that it really does address the question they're trying to answer.
0: So it sounds like standard methods, just that, that process helps get your data organized as it's coming out of the experiment, right? Um, but, the, but there's a heavier lift on the front end because you're organizing it in, in such a way, is there, is there heartburn in that added work? Are there frustrations that come with building that into an experiment?
1: So, yes, I will say to develop a standard method that, uh, so my lab is responsible for five ASTM uh, approved standard test methods. And on average, it's about a five-year process from beginning to end, from developing the method, doing the incredible number of replicate experiments that allows us to get that baseline data to know how repeatable the experiment is, then to going on and doing a ruggedness test where we alter different parameters to see how the method responds to that writing up the method taking it then to ASTM can take a good solid two years to have a method go through if not more so you're looking at a five-year commitment and most PhD programs are about four years and so there's a real disconnect if the student needed to spend five years developing a standard test method they, they would have no that would be their PhD um, so, yes, I think that's part of the challenge, too, with standard test methods, is there's a lot of initial investment and in time and resources up front.
0: So, can you give us an example of a standard test method that you developed?
1: Sure. Um, man, I, there's been a few. <laughs> so, okay, the one is under development right now is for urinary catheters, so antimicrobial urinary catheters and the funding for this started uh, this project started um, let's see six years ago I was funded by Burroughs welcome to develop a standard test method for to determine the efficacy of antimicrobial urinary catheters specifically we're we're looking at the inner lumen of the catheter and um the, the literature review of what methods are out there, you know, deciding what organisms to use, discussions with the experts in the field, developing the method, collecting the data, um, and then the method was submitted to ASTM. Let's see, last October, it was submitted to ASTM and it has now passed through the subcommittee balloting process and it's currently being balloted on the main committee level and so this is the whole the whole process to get this method through and it's still not finally approved for very close but it's not approved and, um and there's
0: no guarantee that it will be
1: and there's no guarantee that it will be
0: so urinary catheters <clears throat> does this mean that your family at home is like oh no here comes mom with the specimen jars again
1: no 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 so this so what's interesting the beauty of um standard test methods and what we're really hoping we can achieve particularly with these medical test methods is to get uh it's all done in the laboratory right? so we're we're not collecting any samples from from humans but to have an incredibly rigorous laboratory test method so that we, we understand how well these catheters are going to perform. And we can screen out ones that don't work as well. So that then when these companies want to move forward with a clinical trial, which is millions of dollars, uh, involves multiple patients, multiple, multiple people. I mean, this is an incredibly huge investment. The, the company goes into that clinical trial with the best information they possibly could have. And so that's, that's part of the regulatory science, creating tools for informed decision-making. We are trying to give companies and regulators the best data possible so that they know how to move forward with the, the decision-making, yeah.
0: Well, the, the regulatory process is extensive. Yes. And it is involved. And, yes. Um, is there something in that process that you could responsibly maybe skip? Like, would you have a recommendation to ASTM to say, hey, you know, this is a six year process. If we remove this one thing, it becomes a three year process and there's no real harm?
1: Um, in the regulatory process or in the standard methods setting process? I don't know. Okay. Um, in the standard method setting process, um, one of the steps that's often skipped is actually ruggedness testing, which is what you do in a lab. You, we alter various parameters to see how what we're interested in how the method responds, and it helps us more fully understand um, how flexible our method is. You know how sensitive it's going to be to small changes mm-hmm. when it's done in different laboratories we do it it's solid science i highly recommend it it is in astm guidelines as um not required but but strongly encouraged and so so
0: even though it does add to the heavy lift you still do that we do and you will teach that
1: and we will teach that because it's it's the um when looking at this from a science standpoint, it's it's an important part of the process and it really does help us understand the method. Oftentimes, that step is skipped. Uh, and that, that step is just skipped over. And the risk they're taking in skipping that step is doing ruggedness testing can help us screen out um issues like in the catheter method, pH is very important. And so it helped us understand that. So when we write the method up, we can say, okay, this particular operating procedure is critical. A lot of attention has to be paid to it to get a good good answer, to get a solid answer. And rugness testing is what enables us to make that statement. So they're kind of taking a risk. And it's interesting because I know Companies of course would like this process to go much faster. And uh, there's always this push for innovation to get innovation out on the market. And I can respect that and I completely understand how important it is for their economics. Uh, I, I appreciate that. And, but what's interesting is that I've actually really come to appreciate the process uh, that these methods go through and the process that some of these products go through. And I've come to really respect actually the questions that the regulators ask about these products and ask about, ask about the process that was used to test them because at the end of the day, the regulators are concerned with public health and they don't wanna make a mistake because a mistake can be very costly. So I, I can respect that, actually. I can so, really appreciate So it's not as that. simple
0: as rolling your eyes and saying, well, there goes the government again, working so slowly, so many inefficiencies. That's not what we're dealing with here.
1: No, actually. I mean, okay, maybe sometimes, but ultimately they really have to be careful and methodical to make sure at the end of the day, when they make a decision, that um, the community, public health, is going to benefit based on that decision because they're not so as concerned about a company's bottom line. They're concerned about public health and I can really respect that, especially as an academic. I think that's why it's awesome to have academics involved in methods development because I make no money from these products. Um, I have no vested interest. I have no conflict of interest. I can completely look at the science. I can understand and appreciate the process and uh can respect the process and appreciate the challenges that are are heaped literally heaped onto our, our regulators
0: hmm. now you an, another interesting area that you work in is biofilms accumulating and beer lines yes like the the, the lines that connect <laughs> the kegs to the tap Yes. And first of all, do I need to be worried? Is this going to make me unhealthy? Because it's pretty widespread. Biofilm does develop in beer lines over time. That's the end of the story, right?
1: Yes, they do. And no, you don't have to be worried. And yes, I still enjoy a glass of draft beer. So no, no concerns there. But I am sure people who drink draft beer at some point in their life have ordered a draft beer, taken a sip, and been like, how? This isn't quite right. And the words people use, you know, there's a whole set of vocabulary that people use to describe beer that doesn't quite taste right. Some people call it skunky or um, I'm trying to, I usually use the word skunky, but it's the the flavor profile is off. That's the nice Mm -hmm. way of saying it. The the flavor profile is off. And particularly if it's a beer that someone knows what the flavor profile is supposed to taste like, you know, they can identify that, that it doesn't quite taste right. So it's a quality control question. It's not like a public health question. Um, so if I
0: drink a funky beer, right, uh, I don't have to worry. I'm, it's not going to make me sick. No. I just might not enjoy it as much as I would have otherwise.
1: Right, right. And so then there's a little bit of the, I just spent $6 on this beer and I'm not enjoying it as much as I could. Um And it's interesting because sometimes there there's other processes like maybe there's some oxidation going on or maybe, you know, there's something else going on in how in the draft system that's off. It it may not be 100 percent due to microorganisms. Um, Could be the temperature of the beer. Could be, you know, the CO2 that's in there. There's there's all these different factors that contribute, Mm -hmm. but definitely microorganisms are one of the factor. Unwanted growth is one of the contributing factors to off flavors, yep.
0: But the the muck that's in there isn't gonna hurt anybody.
1: No, the muck in there is not gonna hurt anyone. And interestingly, um, a lot of these craft beers are unfiltered, you know? And when we were studying the biofilm in the lab, um, one of the main critters that we used to grow these biofilms was basically ale yeast. Um, so we, it was Saccharomyces, so, which is brewer's yeast, is what we used. Literally, it was called brewer's yeast. And, so, um, and then with that, then we added some other bacteria, some Lactobacillus, um, some Acetobacter, some things that would maybe make it that kind of soury-tasting, The bacteria in the yeast really like each other. They like to grow together in biofilms. Um, So it's not like this is going to hurt hurt the person. It's just, like I said, the flavor profile changes. And craft brewers are an amazing group of people, very committed to their art. And they work hard to develop these uh, beers that have very specific flavors, flavor profiles and they want the consumer to be able to enjoy that
0: well given your work in this area surely you've given thought to maybe improvements in the beer delivery system
1: right yes so how to improve the beer delivery system so interestingly so the brewers association is very committed to having clean uh, beer draft lines and they have guidance documents developed around that and they uh, recommend using a caustic solution and actually an acidic solution to kill these uh, microorganisms or beer actually develops beer stones um, within the lines which is kind of interesting so you use the acid solution to help remove these beer stones Uh, these chemistries are actually very strong so one of the questions that my lab looked into recently was taking these these lines, these beer draft lines, and repeatedly exposing them to pretty hard chemicals over a period of many years. So beer draft lines, particularly in some of these establishments are in place for many years, numerous years, not just months, but years. And so the question we were asking is what does that, how does that actually impact the tubing itself? Being exposed to, to those chemistries and then does that result in over long periods of time more biofilm, more bacteria accumulating within these lines? So it's, it's a very complex question. And I think that's one of the things we, I think about a lot actually when biofilms are hard to kill. They're, they're extremely hard to kill. So to go into a system that has a very well developed biofilm requires a fairly harsh chemistry and so the question i like to ask and i'm very interested in is yes killing the biofilm is important and in certain instances it's critical like in a medical situation in a hospital room Um, but then what does that do what what is that continuous use of these very strong chemistries doing to the surfaces themselves and actually to the environment as well, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then ha- what kind of cycle are we creating here? Are we ultimately creating a beast that then becomes harder to kill? Um, so what I'm thinking of specifically actually is these chemistries can cause like some pitting and some corrosion. So then are we giving the bacteria a place to get in there and kind of hide yeah. out? And then it makes it harder for the chemistry to get in and actually kill them.
0: How often, how often should a, a bar replace their beer lines?
1: Uh, Replacing beer lines is non-trivial for some of these bars, when the kegs are in a separate room and the beer is actually being um, transported over like between rooms, Mm -hmm. a, a considerable distance. And so, and it may be built into part of, I don't know, like the ceiling or the floor, depending on how things are oriented. Uh, that's a considerable cost. And so maybe one of the things they could think about is making a system where it's easier to pull out an entire section and then replace an entire section mm-hmm. with quick connects at the end. Um, so there's possibly possibly some choices like that. I know material selection, people are always very interested in, are there better materials that could be used? Are there antimicrobial surfaces that could be used? Uh, one would never want a leaching antimicrobial in a beer line (laughs) because that would also cause off flavors and we do not want to be drinking beer with that in it. Um, But that is a strategy for urinary catheters, right? And really that's just urinary catheter or beer line. It's just transporting fluids through a tube, right? And in the case of urinary catheters uh, that are only in place for a number of days or hours, as opposed to years, having a chemistry that leaches uh, is a possible solution, as a, a possible mechanism to control the anti, the the bacteria, the microorganisms.
0: The Biofilm First podcast is a production of the Center for Biofilm Engineering at Montana State University. Copyright twenty twenty two. All rights reserved.